Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Notice in verse 1, Mark begins by saying that this good news or this gospel is about Jesus. Seems plain enough, but I think it bears repeating today that this gospel that we're talking about, that Mark introduces to us, is not about the results of Jesus' work in your life. It is about Jesus. It's about the man Jesus. Uh, And in that day and age in the, the ancient Near East, when there was a gospel, it was generally because an emperor was sending out a messenger to talk about an upcoming party or some event that was going to be huge, uh, a huge transaction for the entire community. And this is what gospel meant. And so for them, when he's declaring this is the gospel that is all about Jesus, they understand that this is of massive consequence to the culture around us, and this is this incredible message of this coming king, Jesus. See, our culture leverages the gospel to mean all sorts of things that don't point to what Scripture points to. And so it bears reminder for us this morning that as we read the Scripture about Mark, it's not ultimately about my healing, even though that comes with salvation. It's not ultimately about everything going my way, even though we believe that a lot of times God starts to transform and change your life in a positive direction. Ultimately, this is about the coming of Jesus that restores everything. He changes all of culture, everything around us. Hey, Caleb, there's a buzz still from those monitors. Do you mind killing that amp for me? Thank you, man. Um, And so we want, often in the Scripture, when we read through this, we want a gospel that is about self-esteem or self-love or even self-confidence. But that is not the gospel that Mark is introducing. The gospel that Mark is introducing for us this morning is a gospel that comes by one man, through one man, and it changes everything for every man. And it is all about Jesus. So what then is this gospel? The New Testament writers make a profound claim that the gospel is rather a narrow thing. It's not everything. I've been reflecting on that over the past couple of weeks. That as we push into culture, and this is really important, guys. As we press more into culture, our culture wants to leverage the gospel to mean anything. And if the gospel means everything, then it really means nothing. Are you with me? If we have such a broad definition of what the gospel is and how it um, is usable for me, then it means nothing ultimately. So the New Testament writers make this incredibly profound claim that the gospel is narrowly about Jesus who makes everything right. And because of Jesus, the created order itself is going to be restored completely. This is the gospel that we're introduced to here in, uh, in the book of Mark. And as we said last week, Jesus doesn't just come like any other human. In fact, Mark titles him in two ways. Firstly, he says that Jesus is Messiah, or the Anointed One, as we spoke about last week. And secondly, the Son of God. Now, many of you may be familiar with this idea of Messiah. We spoke about it last week, but for the sake of a, just a quick refresher, um, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title. Uh, it's the Greek word that means Anointed One. And if you use the exact same um, meaning, but translate it into Hebrew, it's Messiah. And so for them, for the early Jews, they were looking for this man who would come and who would, who would basically reestablish Israel as the rulers of creation again. They saw themselves in this light according to the scriptures. And so they're out looking for Jesus, who is the Messiah, the anointed one. And so when John Mark comes and he proclaims Jesus, the Christ, this would have perked their ears. Oh, this is the one. 
we've been talking about for thousands upon thousands of years. This is the one that all of those hundreds and hundreds of prophecies were about. It's about Jesus, the Messiah. This is also a nod to Isaiah chapter 61. I want to read this to you, um, where Jesus, he quotes this as he enters the temple uh, and he begins to speak to the people in his own town. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. He has made me Christ to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. How many of you have mourned lately? To provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And so Jesus comes, and the book of Mark, he establishes very early on that Jesus is not just another man, but he is in fact the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and he is anointed to this end. And for the readers who would have heard that, the early Jews, when they heard that word Messiah, it had a very particular definition for us. Now, if I was to ask you this morning, what does Messiah mean? What would you say, other than anointed one? Like, what, is, what does Messiah mean to you? Go ahead. Savior. It's kind of the one we hear the most, right? For Jews, they reject that notion uh, outright. For them, the idea that Messiah was Savior was ludicrous. They were looking for a man. They were looking for a man who was going to come in the line of King David, who would come and sit on the throne, and who would reestablish the physical rule of Israel. And so they're not looking for God to come in flesh. They're looking for a son of David. Are you with me? Because it's not just a spiritual term for them. They, they actually had a King David. They had a lineage of David. They had a tribe of Judah. They're looking for this actual man to come and fulfill a prophecy. So Messiah for them perks very, a very particular set of ideals that are going to happen. Let me read some of them to you, okay? So for a person to be Messiah, this is what Messiah is going to do in their understanding as a Jew. First off, the Messiah is going to gather all the exiles, if you read through the history of Israel, they had come under such uh, captivity from different empires and different rulers that the people of Israel, God said he actually sent them away as part of his wrath, his judgment against them, because they had fallen into idolatry over and over again. He actually gave them over to all of these different conquering empires. So Babylon and Rome and Persia, right? All of these different groups of people came and actually ruled over the land of Israel and took the people into slavery. And this was part of what God promised would happen if they lived in opposition to him and to his rule. So first off, they said that the Messiah would come and gather all of those exiles, those people who had been pushed out of the land by foreign dictators, that God, that God under the Messiah would bring all these people back to Israel. Secondly, that there would be a restoration of the religious courts of justice. In other words, justice would come back into the land. It wasn't going to be ruled by evil and wickedness any longer. So when Messiah comes, everything will be made right again. All the exiles are coming home. Justice will reign supreme. Thirdly, there will be an end of wickedness altogether and of sin and of heresy. In other words, people are back into perfect relationship with God. There's no brokenness or fragments in the way that you live and the way that God has asked you to live. Fourthly, uh, a reward to the righteous. So for those who had been faithful to God's command, that they would be rewarded and they would be lifted up into authoritative roles. Fifthly, there would be a rebuilding of Jerusalem. Sixthly, 
a restoration of the line of King David. So for them, again, they are looking for a physical human who's coming to sit on the throne. So as they are looking for Messiah, they're looking for somebody who's in a very particular tribe and line of people. And they're looking for this guy to come and reestablish the throne of David. Um, And lastly, a restoration of temple service. Now Israel, looking back at Jesus, so you got to imagine, as John Mark is proclaiming this in Rome, there are Jews that are hearing this and saying there's no way that he has accomplished this. But in Mark, in the gospel, we believe that Jesus has fulfilled all of these claims and is, is progressively fulfilling all of them through his second coming. And Mark's gospel declares that he has and is doing all these things just as he promised. He's just doing them way bigger than Israel imagined, right? So here's how it would play out, not just for Israel, but for all the earth. Firstly, that he is calling in all those exiled from God's presence, not just the Jew, right? So Ephesians chapter 2 says that he is uniting Jew and Gentile in the person of Jesus, and he is reconciling both of them to God by his body, sacrificed for us. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. He is and will rule the earth with righteousness and justice, right? This is all of the prophetic declarations about Jesus, is that he has a throne of righteousness and justice, that he will strike down the wicked, that he will give authority to his church to rule and reign with him. That's you. That's me. Why is it important that you obey God on a Monday when nobody's looking? Because God rewards those who walk to follow him and to please him, right? And when we pass, we don't just pass into some kind of like lethargic heavenly state. God actually empowers you with authority to rule and to reign with him. Are you with me? Is this a new idea? No, it's not new, but we don't talk about it a whole lot. That God is actually asking you to walk in obedience so that he can elevate you and entrust more to you. Heaven's not a place where we're sitting on clouds with chubby angels playing harps. It's, it's a place where things are happening. Things are being done. By the way, we're never going to live in heaven. It's nowhere in the scripture either. He's recreating earth so that we can live there. He's not just trying to get you out of here. He's trying to redo the whole deal. Are you with me? Okay, we're touching on a lot of doctrine this morning. We'll come back to that another day. Um, He's going to rule from Jerusalem as king, right? So when Jesus comes back to rule as a physical king on the earth, he will rule from Jerusalem and rule all the nations of the earth from there. It's a big deal, okay? Um, Fifthly, or sixthly, I'm sorry, he rules on the throne of David as a human descendant. Uh, And finally, he restores the earth as the temple of God. He's not restoring a singular temple on a hill in the middle of Jerusalem. He's restoring the whole earth as the place of his glory. Are you with me? That all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. He's restoring everything, not for an order of priests, but so that you can be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Jesus fulfills the criteria of Messiah. And for the Jewish nation, they have continued to fight and to battle with this idea. But we as God's people, what we're saying and what Mark's claim is, is that Jesus has fulfilled all these things. And what does this mean for us as a New Testament people who aren't Jewish? Well, maybe it's very challenging for us to understand how important that is, but Israel is the conduit through which all of God's promises and salvation have come to the world. And for Jesus to be Messiah, that means that this new creation and this new order has been inaugurated in him. This brand new thing is going on. Suddenly, because Jesus is Messiah, you have access to the promises of God. 
Suddenly, if Jesus is Messiah, you have access to every covenant that has been given by God. It's no longer a select group on the other side of the ocean. We can still have a heart for them. We still need to pray for the nation of Israel. But ultimately, in Christ, what we see is this loud declaration that God is calling you a son and a daughter of God, not just a group of other people elsewhere. And that changes everything for us. Amen? But Mark does more than just call him the Messiah of Israel, the completer of Israel. He also calls him what? Son of God. Now, now, this is striking. And for us, it's just secondhand information, right? We just read it through the Gospels. We fly through it because we know it. But for the people who would have heard that, this was not their understanding of Messiah. Again, they were looking for a man. And suddenly, Jesus starts to really poke and prod at their theology or their, their doctrine of Messiah. He says, if this guy is just a descendant of David, then why does David prophesy about him uh, and call him Lord? How can David call some of his descendants their own Lord? And Jesus starts to really poke at this idea that he is far more than just a man, but he is, in fact, God. And what a claim that is for us. What a claim it is even today. It's one thing for us to say that Jesus is the anointed man um, that was sent by God, it's quite another to say he's the son from God. And we have to take into account that in Jesus, like we sang it this morning, we collide with humble, tangible humanity, and we also collide with perfect, sinless divinity. In Christ, heaven comes to earth. In Christ, the fullness of God steps into the fullness of man. And this is kind of the story all throughout the scriptures. The original earth was the place where heaven and earth, uh, where, where flesh and temporal was met with eternal, where these things came together. Even the temple, if you were to ask the Jews, what is the temple all about? The temple was a place where God and man could coincide. And suddenly, in Christ, there's a different declaration. It's that God is not trying to get you to meet with him just in a, a specific building, but that in your own flesh, because of Jesus, you can meet with God. Are you, are you sensing the bigness? So like for, for Israel, for them to go and to be with God once a year, they would have to travel from wherever they lived and they would go back to the center point in Jerusalem and step into a building so that they could meet with the Holy of Holies, right? But they couldn't actually go before him. It was too treacherous. They were sinful. How many of you have a little bit of sin left in you? Less hands than should be. Yeah, 100% on this one. Like we don't even have to wonder. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If this was one of those places where we just invited you in, hey, come into the manifest presence of God. Without Jesus, we all die. Like that would be a very interesting Sunday morning church service, right? There is no hope for us to come into the presence of God. But in the, the idea of temple, the people suddenly had this illustration that they were coming as God's people into his presence, but it was still buffered. Right? There was still this curtain that was, I think, like a foot thick, and it hung from ceiling to floor, and you couldn't pass it. Only the high priest could go in, and only once a year, and even that guy wore a bell in case he died, right? If you heard the bell ring, and maybe this guy is dying, you know, like he's, something bad is happening. He's ringing it, trying to get out of there because he was sinful. In Christ, the declaration is that we don't come and stand outside of the curtain of God's presence, but Peter actually says that he, that he, I'm sorry, Hebrews actually says that his body was the curtain open for us so that we all had passage into the presence of God. 
And so suddenly, where it was just a building on the other side of the earth where you had to go and meet with him one time and you couldn't even really get to his presence, now you and I, by his spirit, have become the visitation place of God. Are you with me? And not singularly, but together. He says you, you are a, a, a temple of living stones. So it's not a, like a reincarnation of Jesus. You're not becoming Jesus. We are being made into the bride of Christ, collectively. He makes you the visitation place. He makes Jesus the visitation place. And this was the loud declaration of Mark. Guys, and think about it. He's in Rome. They know where the temple is. You can travel there still. He's saying you don't have to go there to meet with God. God came down the mountain to meet with you. Everything you thought you had to do to get to him, God has, by grace, come to do for you. He's made the trip. And for some of us, we still live our lives trying to make the journey to get to God. And God says, please stop. I have already sent heaven to earth. I've already sent my son so that you can meet with me face to face. So even this morning, man, if you've given your life to the Lord or you're like walking in this place and saying, I just need to get to church to get fed or to meet with God. Listen, that's fantastic. I hope that that happens. But that needs to happen also at your house on a Monday morning. That needs to happen in your home on a Tuesday night. In every restaurant you go to, you have access to and a fullness in the Spirit of God because Jesus came. There's a direct line, there's a direct lineage to who God has made you to be, who He's called you to be, and the coming of Jesus. And so when when Mark proclaims this, it is powerful for us to grab a hold of that, um, that in Christ, humanity and divinity collide. That's why worship is so special. A bunch of people filled with the Spirit of God who have access to God, who come together, and suddenly just the presence of God, you feel Him, you sense Him, and He's here. Are you with me? That's why we encourage people actually to, to come to corporate gatherings and to do midweek communities. It's not because you can't absolutely follow Jesus on your own. It's just a, it's a stupid idea. That, that sounds crass. I'm sorry. It's a dumb idea to try to do that by yourself when you are, you are surrounded by people whom God has filled with His Spirit. Think of the wisdom. Think of the, the power of God that's in operation when people come together in collaboration and link arms. Spirit-filled people. Filled with the power of God and the presence of God. There's something powerful that happens. I'm stronger because of the people I'm around who are also walking with Jesus. You're stronger. For some of you, you're, you're facing struggles and temptations. You need to link up with people who are going hard after Jesus. Don't surround yourselves with people who are taking you back into the system of the world. Surround yourselves with people who are going after the Lord with everything they have. Amen? We have to take this into account. And I think that this is really important because we have these moments where we can see Jesus' humanity. Now, I don't know about you, I've, I have this theory that we all kind of lean in one direction or the other, you know? Like in Christ we see the fullness of man and the fullness of God. But I tend to look one direction or the other. Do you guys do that as well? Like we, we, we bump into Jesus' humanity here though. And it is, it's overwhelming if you can really take it in. Jesus weeps when his friend dies. He's angered when he sees the Pharisees mischaracterizing God. He gets tired and hungry. He falls asleep in a boat that's going to capsize. He's exhausted. He has all of these different pressures that are pushing against him. He's rejected and betrayed by his family. Think about how that must have felt. Maybe you've walked through a period of that. Think Jesus was real. He's tangible. 
He, he feels what we feel. He has felt it. He has seen it and sensed it. It's not just God who's dealing with his family betraying him. Right? He's not cold and distant from that. He's brokenhearted by that. And we know what that's like. We know what it's like to hurt and to feel cold and to feel hungry. We know what it's like to feel shame. We know what it's like to feel broken. Jesus was not a stranger to those feelings, but in Christ we see humanity. He's one of us. But also, he's completely different than us. Like we also see those moments where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and light beams out of him. Right? It's not like the sun is shining on him brighter. The sun is shining from within him. His clothes are white. It says that his likeness is like lightning. Yeah, he's like you, man. He's like me, Zach, but he's also nothing like me. There are those moments where I can look at him and I can see myself and what I'm going through. And there are those moments where it says the disciples were dismayed. They had no idea who this guy was. He had such a drive to please the Father. He had such a drive to go the distance and to do what God had called him to do. And he was fully God. And so maybe this morning you identify more with Jesus as Son of God. I want to invite you to embrace his humanity as well. In his humanity, we meet with our own humanity, and we're invited to learn how to follow him also in obedience. So maybe you, like me, um, you tend to just see God as, or see Jesus as God, and it's like, man, he, he's powerful, and none of this stuff phases him. I want to invite you to believing the fact that, I'm sorry, I'm kind of repeating myself. I want to invite you to believe the fact that Jesus is also human. Uh, this past week or two weeks ago, I was riding in the car, and I have this significant relationship in my life that I've just been struggling with, and uh, faced a lot of conflict in that and brokenness. I don't know if any of you have gone through seasons like that in your own life, but I was talking to the Lord out loud, and I said, Lord, how in the world do you want me, because I feel like God's been teaching me to become fully human, and that sounds strange, but um, for me, the way that I'm hardwired is I'm going to obey God no matter what. That's what that's how I want to live. In the midst of that, when things get too painful, you just shut off all the emotional receptors and you go into robot mode is what I call it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Any of you feel, ident- here's my robot side evidently, here's the other. Okay, I'm with you. I feel you. <laughs> I was talking to the Lord and I, I just recognized in me, I want to be obedient, but often I have just shut my heart down completely so that I could survive it, Right? And I was talking to the Lord, and I said, Lord, how do I do this? Because you want me to be aware and awake to the fact that this is terrible, that it hurts. You actually want me to open my heart up so that you can meet me in that place of brokenness. The Holy Spirit meets you in your brokenness. He comforts those who mourn. How can he comfort us if I won't even let him know that I'm hurting, right? I said, how do, how do I do this? How do I become fully human, recognize the places that hurt so bad, and still obey? And I heard the Lord, I just felt like Jesus said very clearly, that's me. Like your revelation of me hasn't fully developed to where you understand. I felt everything. I felt everything. Every betrayal, every hurt, every false accusation. I felt every single one and was still fully faithful and obedient. How do we reconcile a Jesus who says, God, I don't want to do this, but not my will. I want to do what you want to do. How do you reconcile that? In Jesus, we find this invitation to embrace both our humanity and divinity and what God is breathing into you and I today. 
And so I want to invite you to experience the fullness of Jesus. All right, verse uh, 2, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now Mark quotes this, and he actually says from Isaiah, but interestingly enough, he quotes out of Malachi and Isaiah. Um, and so we want to read from both of those really quickly. Malachi 3.1, we read a piece of this last week, and this is really cool. In Malachi 3.1, God is speaking through the prophet, and he says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, who we know is John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before me. Listen to that. God is speaking about Jesus, but he's doing it in the first person. Weird. How would the Jew have read that? I'm going to send my messenger, and he's going to clear the way before me. He doesn't say, and he will clear the way before you. It says, he will clear the way before me. This is God's declaration of who Christ is. Not just a man, but God. Isn't that cool? This is 400 years before the arrival of Jesus. God is already saying, I'm coming. And so when Mark declares Jesus is the Son of God and Messiah, he points back to Malachi 3 and says, this is the one who God claimed to be in. This is God's revelation of who he is. Now, I love that Mark reminds us of this passage from Isaiah, um, and I love that he shows us that the gospel begins in the wilderness. This is beautiful. Salvation often comes in the most unlikely places. I don't know about for you, but God seems to show up in the most unlikely moments, in the most unlikely places. And often God sends these unlikely individuals to start that process. We see in verses 6 through 8 that John actually comes as this kind of wild man, a person who doesn't belong. Uh, like even when you read it, you get this Old Testament prophet sense about him, right? He's clothed in camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey. Like this guy is crazy. Are you with me? It's not like the Jews were like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Camel's hair. That's all the rage. No, like it wasn't something that they did. This guy looks nuts to them. They know that he doesn't quite fit. He probably reminds them a lot of Elijah. This wild man out in the wilderness calling people to repentance and calling down fire on all the wicked. That is what they were thinking about when they see John in this passage. Let's read in verse, chapter, uh, in verse 6. It says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. Listen to this. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I love that God doesn't wait to come to the most developed moments in your life and suddenly reveal himself. He comes in the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you guys, but right now, all the church planting movements, if you're to go out and read, they all plant in urban centers. And it really strikes me as funny. Like if we were going to do a really great um, sexy church plant, we should go to Atlanta or like New York or Las Vegas, you know, because that's where the action is. The problem is Jesus shows up in the wilderness. John the Baptist starts his ministry in the wilderness. Often we're looking for the, the bright moments, the highlight moments for God to show up. And he selects wild men eating bugs in the wilderness to declare the way of the Lord. How do you think he shows up in our lives? He doesn't always start in the highlight moments. He starts in the uncultivated places. That's what wilderness means. It's uncultivated, desolate, and even lonely. 
Oftentimes we go into these seasons and we believe, man, God's salvation is so far off. I am so far away from God. And I promise you, if your season feels like uncultivated, desolate, or even lonely, maybe you're in the perfect position to receive Jesus. You're in the perfect spot for God to start entering in again. Why? Because we lose all sense of preconceived notions and illusions of what it's going to be like when we enter in those places. Maybe you start eating a couple bugs, you know, like, like life just gets very simple. We drill into what it really looks like. It's not beautiful and mountaintop moments where Jesus is being transfigured. It's wilderness and him calling out places of brokenness in us. You know, years ago where when we were entering into the missions season of our life, we were, we left Evangel Temple and we felt like God was calling us into missions. You guys know the story if you've been around any time. We raised a full budget. We're about to leave and to go to Turkey and Nora starts showing a lot of signs of struggling. And so we were, I was still really idealistic and hard-headed. And I said, no, 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 if we just get to Turkey, she's going to be fine. You know, faith, 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 which was not faith. It was like a lack of faith. And, and one day God said, I need you to trust me in this. And um, she was diagnosed with autism right before we left. Now, y'all know Nora. She's, uh, if, if you know Nora, um, she probably wouldn't diagnose with autism now. But years back. She was having some significant struggle, and I really hit a wall. I was living behind Evangel Temple, a place where I had served for 10 years. All my identity had been attached to that place, who I knew that I was, and now I'm living in the yard behind the church. I'm no longer a pastor, and I'm not connected anywhere. And God started to take me into a season of stripping off all these layers of what I thought my life was supposed to be like. I don't know if you've gone into one of those seasons where God takes you to the side and starts stripping layers off. And you're like, no, 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 God, we were, you spoke a word and we were going to, we were faithful and now you're going to bless and it's going to look like increase. And he says, yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing. He said, no, 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 this is not increase. You're, you're ripping away all the junk that seems to be strapped to who I am and my identity and my sense of self. He goes, yeah, yeah, increase. That's what we're doing. <laughs> you know? No, 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 God, I don't think you understand. <laughs> when you apply heat to me and the burden and pressure of this world, it doesn't feel like increase. He says, yes, but it's increase. And I remember standing at the coffee pot one morning, I was loading it up, and I remembered this old sermon of a pastor who said, he was talking about the life of Moses and the wilderness. And he said, it's not until you are like Moses and you enter into the wilderness in a season of stumbling and mumbling where you lose all sense of your identity, of your vocation, of your giftedness, and of who you think you are, and then God can use you. And I heard it, and I was not in a hallelujah moment. I was in a mad moment. I said, Lord, is that what this is? And I was loading the coffee pot. You're going to put me on the shelf for 40 years, and then one day use me. And the Lord was so present. It's the clearest I have ever heard him. And he said so tenderly, the wilderness is the only place where I get you all to myself. He said, you have misevaluated the season to be some kind of punishment, and I'm telling you that this is just about me and you. You don't prove anything. This is not about your accolades. It's not about your gift set. It's not about you at all, except that you're going to remember who you are in me. And there were moments, guys, where he would take me into those seasons and just simply say, Grant, if you don't ever have another accolade of ministry, if nobody ever follows you again, is that okay? Are you okay being just a son? And there were a lot of days where I said, no, Lord, I'm not okay with that. I'm really into accolades. <laughs> there were some days where I said, yeah. 
Yeah, that'd be good. God starts in the wilderness. He takes you into wilderness seasons so that He can free you, so that He can take the burden off of who you think you ought to be and remind you of who you are. And when we enter into those wilderness seasons, just like Jesus did, we don't enter in and try to fight for our own now. We enter into the victory of Jesus. Jesus came and was revealed in broken, desolate places so that broken, desolate people could know him. How many of you have felt a little broken and desolate in this past season? The the invitation is that Jesus is here. He doesn't come to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount to reveal himself. He goes out to the wilderness. And John's declaration is of him. They say, John, John, who are you? You seem to be special. All these people are flocking out to you. What is this revival? It must be all about you. He says, no, no, no. I'm just a voice. What's your calling, John? What's your anointing? We want to know everybody's calling anointing. Listen, if we spend so much time putting titles on people, we're in danger of not seeing Jesus. What's, what's your title, John? What's your anointing? And he says, my anointing is just to be a voice. Someone who calls out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths of our God. And this vision of what it means to make a way for Jesus to enter in is that all of the mountains are flattened and all of the valleys are filled in. That this is a perfectly clean path. John the Baptist came as an Elijah to declare that the word of God is this. Repent because he's coming. Repent because he's coming. And we stand on this side just as John pointed forward to a kingdom and he baptized people into something that only Jesus could really bring about. Right? He baptized them into repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He couldn't do that. Only Jesus could. John only prepared the way for the ministry that happened through Jesus. What is our call in anointing? Is it not to simply point back to Jesus who is the only way for people to come to the Father? The way that you and I operate in in Teen Challenge or at the dental office or wherever you are doing drywall, our heart, our desire, what we live for is to point back to this Jesus who is the only one who can fix things. And we know that because we have been those who have inherited him, right? John's estimation of himself, they're like trying to prop him up. He says, no, I'm not even worthy to stoop down like the lowest servant and untie his sandals. That is how much less I am than him. I baptize you with water. It's physical. It's earth. And it will cleanse away the sin on, the, on your conscience. But he comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Guys, there is nothing that we need more than the baptism of the Spirit of God. It only comes by Messiah and the Son of God. And John's claim is that in Christ we see both things fulfilled. That Israel has been fulfilled so that you can be a receiver of the promises and covenants of God. And that because he's a son of God, that he can not only save you and redeem you and forgive you your sins, but he can fill you with the Holy Spirit who lives in him. This is the bold claim of Mark, even in these first few verses. But what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for us that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and liberally poured his spirit out on all flesh. What does it mean that you have access to the throne room of God? What does that mean? This is what he's calling us to wrestle with. And this today is what I'm inviting you to wrestle with. If Jesus is who he said he is, then who are you because of that? 
inheritors, heirs. If this gospel, Scott McKnight says the gospel is either good news for everybody or it's good news for nobody. This gospel is available and accessible for everybody. And this gospel is about Jesus, whom Mark claims is Christ and Son of God. Maybe today you find yourself identifying with one or the other. I want to invite you to wrestle with the beautiful humanity, the fragility, the tenderness and brokenness, and the power and presence of the divine. They both find themselves perfectly seated in Christ and by His Spirit, perfectly seated in you. What does it mean for you to carry the very same thing that Mark says was in Jesus? Amen? Let me pray for you.